Harion. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of the Uru Labs podcast from Bengaluru. Ever complain how bad our cities are, how bad your commute is? You will get to hear from people who are working to solve these problems in their own way. This is your weekly soapbox for urban sustainability. I am your host Satya Shankaran. Ashwin Mahesh needs no introduction. but that's a cliche i'll still introduce him he is a scientist urbanist journalist politician and a social technologist his theory of change of increasing the number of problem solving people has been quite an influence in how i look at problems as well in my earlier podcast on jobs i promised to deep dive into education and cities the skills gap and how it is the underlying factor towards how cities are viewed and the economy is viewed and the knowledge economy is viewed Ashwin has worked with various educational institutions quite a bit and has worked with some of them with the students and like me currently teaches as well so i thought who better than him to talk about the knowledge economy and can it make better cities welcome back to the show Ashwin thank you satya i'm really happy to be here so i would just like to dive in with this broad question of setting the stage is there a correlation between knowledge and the city how do you view their influences on each other if you look at the some of the cities that have become globally well known in the last let's say 30 40 50 years it seems like their success has a lot to do with certain kinds of decisions certain kinds of choices they've made bets on information technology they've made bets on pharmaceuticals whatever essentially cities seem to be picking cities and regions seem to be picking some things to make bets on heavily and give themselves competitive advantages as a result and different countries are organized differently the the american cities run very differently from the european city the indian cities run very differently so they can't always make these decisions in the same ways but broadly you can say cities are trying to give themselves a competitive advantage by betting on something but how much are they betting on the underlying elements of those things for example if you say we're going to make an it park that's great but what is your investment in it itself because the park is for the post educated face in some ways it's for you know by by the time you come to interact and intersect with this park you are either an employer or an employee you're putting this park together you're running it you're creating products that and services in it and so on and so forth but who actually goes into that park to work and what is their preparation for doing that right and how many people like that are there can you build this park everywhere and be sure that there are enough knowledge or knowledge driven or knowledge educated or enough educated people to come and populate each of these parks for example if you now say um something let's take something that's less common let's say a genomics park now you can say if, you, if there's a genomics park it seems easier to imagine that there may not be that many people that can go into that park because not so many people are choosing to get into genomics compared to it uh but you have to have the underlying capacity sometimes you say we're going to have a textile park because this area has historically had lots of people in the textile economy uh or we're going to have silk you, you know these kinds various governments housing so the question really is are we giving ourselves enough of a chance to have 
young people sufficiently informed and prepared and educated about the particular domains around which we are making bets. Mm. That's what it is. It's not simply to say can cities have a competitive economy based on something. But where are they going to find the people who will populate that company? One thing that seems to be happening is for now, many cities, especially with ID, many cities are betting that no matter where young people are educated in information technology, we will build an IT park to attract them from there to our place. But there may be a common miscalculation in that. Mm-hmm. Not only X number of people, every city can't build itself a few, in an imagination of the future thinking that I'm going to get this XP, number one. And number two, people don't just go to an industry or a job because it exists. So they're choosing places also. So let's look at this question of are we preparing sufficient numbers of young people who can go into the intended economy of a city and strengthen it and to make it competitive, nationally competitive, globally competitive. Probably the answer is no. It's the same thing with a lot of other complex problems, but you can disaggregate it and you can find different bits and pieces of it that confirm this reason for mm. you. Probably I think we can say no, simply because so few people are benefiting from the education system as it currently is. Mm. We know, for example, that if we take Karnataka, 50% of young people are not even completing 12 years of formal education. I mean, the government gives you some data, but I think those data are very carefully worded. They'll say the exam had a 70% pass rate, but they will not tell you how many people actually, who should have appeared for the exam actually appeared. So if there are 100 people who should appear for an exam and 70 appear, and out of that 70, you have a 70% pass rate, that means only 49 passed and 51 did not. But they'll forget to tell you about the 100, they'll only say 70 appeared and 49 passed. That makes it look like slightly better outcome. So, but, but the broad problem we have is not enough young people are getting a reasonable education. Mm. There's an even bigger problem uh, besides just that, which is that even those who are getting educated, their learning is not as valued as we would need them to be or like them to be. You talk to a typical employer, hmm. employers have a somewhat disdainful view of colleges. God only knows what happens over there. It's more like a uh, center. three years kind of thing, hmm. or it's a racket. Or it's a, nobody seems to have a, they have some reasonable view of some institutions. Uh, but it's also true, like they say about politics, right? People dislike politicians in general. But they don't dislike their own politicians that much. Uh, that's why they, they keep re-electing the guy. Um, so it, it may be true to some extent of anything that's universally regarded as not that great, um, but persists. There are people who say this is not a bad institution, that is not a bad institution, and so on and so forth. But by and large, there is a sense that these institutions, God knows what they are producing. This is the underlying reality, which is the confidence of the employing class mm. in what the education system is putting out mm. is very low. And cities, cities and states that run the cities need to figure out how they're going to source the people mm. 
who will populate this future economy that they are betting on mm. if the employers in in that sector don't feel that mm. there is strength to do that. If you see, for example, some IT parks were set up in other smaller cities also several years ago, but have been very slow to take off. Mm. Similarly, there are parks in various industries, pharmaceuticals park and textile park and solar park and various parks all over the uh, state, certainly, and maybe even the country, which have not taken off as much as they should. Why? Two, three things. They have tended to focus on allocation of land mm. for industry and allocation of resources to run those industries, water, power, those kinds of things. That doesn't really make those things powerful enough in social and cultural terms as well. So ultimately ask yourself this question. If not in the hometown that you now have, if not in Bangalore, where else are you willing to live in India? Okay. I mean, that's really the question. And if you answer that question, broadly, you know, speaking for myself, I might say, well, there are some five cities maybe that I'm willing to live in uh, besides Bengal. You know, five out of what? Five out of gazillions, literally all over the country and around the world. So all of us have a, a kind of what you would call voting with our feet built into how we are going about our lives. So even choosing to be in the same place is a bit of voting with our feet. This happens even within the city. If you ask yourself, if not in Sanjayanagar, which are the other parts of the city that I'm willing to live in, that list also may not be more than 10 neighborhoods. Right? Certainly, you know, I say I live in Jepinagar. Now I tell myself, which other parts of the city am I willing to live in? And maybe, I don't know, six other parts, four of which are adjacent to Jepinagar. Right? <laughs> so, in a sense, we, we come to these set preferences. Hmm. Theory, a lot is possible. In mm. theory, a lot. Uh, in theory, a lot is possible. In practice, not all of us. And the educational system, and we should spend some time on this, is full of theory that is not correlated to practice. I mean, one part of the education system is, the, is that it seems to be mostly theory and no practice. Correct. But I'm saying even the theory of its own functioning is not related to the practice of how it functions. So why don't we run this through from the school upwards up to the college and everything else? Yeah. And, so and let's take some simple questions, right? Mm, mm. When you're young, when you're really little, uh, your parents, your neighbors, your family, extended family, teachers, everybody sort of celebrates your curiosity. Mm. They say, oh, so there's a nice boy. Uh, he's interested in this, he's interested in that. And this goes on for like some seven or eight years until about you reach eight standard order. After that, all these people who have been celebrating your curiosity and your interest in a thousand things suddenly turn around and say, Adalabidu, now get on with this damn exam. You've got only four things. Even that one of the subjects you can eat. Three, you study really hard. And then by, by 10 standard itself, you decide which course in life you want to get into. The science arts course thing. And then it's an even narrower focus. Basically, if, you know, cracking the exam becomes the real thing. And there are entire industries that have sprung up in India whose only mm. reason to exist is exam cracking. Yep. Uh, there are towns even that are famous only for becoming exam coaching centers. I mean, at one level, if you are a child, this has to do something to you. All these people who have been telling me and celebrating some things in me as a child, now they're telling me the exact opposite of what they used to tell earlier. First, there's a credibility problem. You're not sure which is correct. The same people are telling 
both sides. Yeah. See, maybe that is rationalized by saying when you are young, that was okay. Now you are older. Mm. So one is there is this problem. The second thing that happens, which is different as you go through your education system, is when you are young, by and large, they don't exclude you from anything. Like, you know, if you're reasonable in first standard, you surely go to second standard. If you're reasonable in fifth standard, you surely go to sixth standard. Nobody will say, at the end of fourth standard, you have to take an exam. Only if you pass that exam, only if you're in the top 70, 17%, you can go to fifth standard. But as you get closer to the top, this filtering and filter, uh, examination for exclusion. Mm. Right? This is, I, I no longer believe this has anything to do with examination for assessment. Mm. Examination for exclusion. There are 10,000 applications. There are only 17 seats. So we got to eliminate whatever, you know, 99% of those people. How do we do that? We hold an exam. And we say, here are the 17 people who, who are admitted. The others are all told you take more exams or you, whatever. You try something else in life. But by and large, because of such, there's a huge pyramid in this, which is yeah. that the drop-off in the number of seats available mm. for formal continuing education beyond high school is very low compared to the number of seats in high school itself. Therefore, by def definition, you have to eliminate a lot of applicants saying, okay, you 100 people graduated from school, but there are only 17 seats in college. You have to somehow be told there's nothing in it for you. You do something else. So I think that there is a volume and capacity problem in the higher education itself. Mm. Mm. So now let's say you're betting your city's future on a certain information economy or knowledge economy. Mm. You've got to make sure that there are enough colleges teaching that thing. And ideally you want enough of those colleges to be teaching that thing in your area. If that doesn't happen, then you've got to rely on somehow getting people from other areas. So there's a pyramid. And there is an exclusion through examination. Whereas, if you were to say, okay, Satya, you want to learn about textile engineering. And you are going to get continuing opportunities to learn about textile engineering. And the idea is not to, at any point, exclude you through an examination. Hmm. But to use that examination only to assess where you are now. Mm. Not to stop you from continuing in textile engineering from that point. That is, you are not never told mm. you won't get a seat. You know, in India, getting a seat is a is an actual term, and it's as though you're going to sit there and <laughs> you know become a textile engineer. But in a sense, there should be a way to say, here is Ashwin. He wants to be a textile engineer. He's actually really bad. He, he at whatever, he might have this dream, but he's really bad. But so what? So what if your starting point is really bad? Does that mean that you should not be given a path to the dream? Maybe if you are given a path to your dream, you'll try harder and do something better than what you've done. So I think there's a problem with examination as an excluding point. And, and what that does is it's reducing the numbers of people who can come into any economy that you are betting on because you're saying, first, I'll allow only a certain number of people to come through. And usually this is done, not in a mindless way. It's done because the government says, that's how we ensure quality. Ratio. Well, let's start with quality. We'll come with numbers. Like, hmm. Look. Uh, who knows, you can't like randomly allow anyone to become an engineer. You mm. can't randomly allow anyone to become a doctor and so on and so forth. But I, I'm not disputing that. I'm making a slightly different point. I'm saying 
the examination says that we are going to allow only people above a certain threshold right. in the examination to become textile engineers. I'm saying, why? I'm not saying let anybody graduate and call himself a textile engineer. I'm saying why can't people below that threshold also be given an opportunity to pull themselves up above that threshold graduate and become a textile engineer. I'm saying exclusion at the point of entry into uh, something that, that you're attracted to, some field that you're attracted to, is a bad idea. But you have to have a way of saying in any domain, there is a path to learning that is open to anyone who is interested in it. You can take longer, but you can get to it. Yeah, it can take longer. Exactly. You put it literally, you hit the nail on the head. It can take longer, but you should be able to go through. Therefore, you know, in some sense, it feels like the less you have this examination that filters you out, the better. Now, there is some reform Mm -hmm. along these lines globally. There is an excellent program in New York State, in New York City initially, uh, called uh, PTECH. Mm-hmm. It has some expansion, P-T-E-C-H, run by a guy called Prashid Davis. Um, what it does is, it says if you are in the high school in this program, you are guaranteed admission in college. Mm-hmm. You, not get, you may not get be guaranteed admission in a top college. You may not be guaranteed admission even in a four-year college, but you will surely be guaranteed admission at least in a training college like a junior college or a community college from which you can continue and come back into uh, even a full-fledged university. So the idea is that you don't exclude people at 12 standard by saying there is an actual ratio of those who are admitted versus not admitted. That is, imagine this, we have created a system in which some people are permitted to learn Mm. and others are not permitted to learn even if they want to learn this seems like a really bad system it design it is it seems like a system that will keep the numbers of people who are learning low and that's not a good thing if you're betting on the economy of that thing okay so that's that's one thing Mm. the second reason why i think we're Again, this, the overall question we're trying to answer is how can a city that is betting on an economy ensure that enough people Correct. come through who are educated in that field? One is eliminate the exam, create mm. a pathway for more and more people to learn that subject from any starting point. Let them take longer if necessary, but allow them to learn in that. Create some mechanism. Now, there's a second problem. Who teaches? Mm. Right. One is who learn, who is allowed to learn. The second is who is allowed to teach. Now you are um, you're running a podcast show. Mm. You don't know anything in, in on your resume. There's no way to tell that you know you've studied anything to do the job that you are currently doing. Uh, I you know for me that's been true for many years. Uh, so for many of us, there's nothing in our resume to say that we are any good at doing the jobs that we've been doing. And, uh, but the education system, it doesn't really acknowledge expertise of that sort. By and large, in school, you need to have this bachelor's of education degree to teach in most schools. Uh, and then in colleges also, they prefer you to have you know, certain credentials, certain 
credential that is really the issue right what how do yeah. you demonstrate that you are credentialed adequately to teach something now again what what has happened is the government has said well we need we need to ensure quality right and therefore we have this requirement that you have to take one bed course and that examination uh, therefore we have this other requirement that you should have at least a phd to teach in a whatever certain program and so on and so forth or at least to say a big percentage of people who teach in a college program should have a phd so in a sense what has happened now is people are not trying to meet those benchmarks they'll get one bed without actually new feeling like they're going through that course they'll do on correspondence bed this correspondence bid is quite popular because they are only checking some box to meet some legalistic requirement likewise uh, the doctor thing is becoming even worse there are even advertisements you can find online to say how to buy one you don't actually have to study to get that title so there are all kinds of things going on over there but again coming back to the question that interests us mm. limiting the number of people who are permitted to teach is also going to limit the number of youngsters who learn I, I read somewhere that sixty percent of degrees in India are still BAs, mm. right? And like in history, literature, kind of, uh, politics, and so on and so forth. Uh, and certainly, those things—I mean, they have some value, but they are not the kinds of things that cities are betting on for a knowledge economy. As it is, the number of kids going to college is low. Mm. The majority of them are going mm. to programs that are just checking some box of saying, "I also have a degree." Right? No wonder that employers start to undervalue. All of these kinds of things, because you are limiting who can teach, you are also limiting the number of people who can learn. If you say that there is more than one way to teach and there is more than one type of person who can teach, and what is taught should be now. Here's the funny part: government mm. never says this. They say the exam is important to ensure quality. Correct. But if the exam is important to ensure quality, anybody should be allowed to take the exam. You yeah. Have, but you shouldn't have to go to a recognized school. You shouldn't have to go to a, a certain kind of classroom. They do, of course, will say, okay, you can do a private candidacy, you can do open school and all of those kind of things. But I still feel that system is not open enough to say the exam is different from, in fact, there should be people allowed to conduct any number of exams. You understand? Here's the other thing. The whole system is internally rigged to say only the thing that I say is an approved college is an approved college. Approved colleges can only take Kids who have passed an exam, only the exam that I conduct is the approved exam. For the approved exam, you have to be in a student in a school. Only the thing that I say is a school is an approved school. In that school, you learn from teachers. Only the teacher that I say is a good approved teacher is an approved teacher. When you finish this, going through all of these filters, you have vastly reduced the number of people who can actually learn. Yeah. Right? Or teach. Now, and there's one other. The elephant in the room. The government itself runs a lot of educational institutions, which are in theory following all these rules. But in practice, people are not going to those ones. They are not saying these are the great institutions that go there. In fact, when the government, in some cases, the government has great institutions, like your IITs and IIMs. You know what they do in those institutions? They remove all these rules. <laughs> That's how they become better. <laughs> in, a sense, in a sense, for their own institutions. They do two things. They neither follow these rules, mm -hmm. nor do they, they. At two extremes, at one extreme, they don't follow the rules because they can't actually too much work for them to follow the rules. At another extreme, what they are saying is, well, if we want this institution to be good, we got to get rid of these rules. 
Mm. You don't extend that logic to other people, right? And it causes great harm even. I remember a village school in which there are some 12 or 15 students in high school. The education department was telling that school. It was a very good school, doing reasonably, you know, producing good outcomes in a rural area where the government education system virtually like missing. And this school was being told by the education department, because you do not have 20 students, you cannot be considered an approved school. You should have a minimum strength of 20. But many government schools have less than 20 students in a class, right? They're not considered unapproved. But this rule exists. And this, and this private school is being told, eventually all that guy wanted was buy one more executive chair for my office and I'll give you the post. It, it comes down to some racket like that. Here's the quint. Let's say you are in a village. Some school in your village is teaching you and there are 15 kids in the high school class. They're learning well. Suddenly the department comes and says, unless you have 20 kids, you can't, these 15 cannot continue learning. What is the village supposed to do? Well, you're going to produce five more kids from. <laughs> it's not like new families are migrating to that village all the time and you can add uh, suddenly five more teenagers to the classroom. In a sense, the rules exist. And if you talk to the department, you say, Lazar, that is all just, you know, you're there. I'm sure you can talk to your block education officer and get that kind of thing. In theory, the rule is sortable. In practice, it's not so easily sortable. So what has happened is this. So let's take that as one piece. By limiting the number of people who can teach, by limiting the number of youngsters who can learn, and by limiting the number of ways in which one can teach. We are limiting the output. That is the number of young people who are formally trained in one domain is limited because of all these restraints on how they can go through the process. So we have to come up with a way for more young people to learn in some way the things that we want many people to learn in order to be able to participate in a competitive economy in which you are placing a bet. You're saying, I'm going to bet that the future of this region is going to be on agricultural trading. The future of that region is going to be on what uh, construction technologies and so on and so forth. If you want that, you have to make sure there's enough young people coming through that thing. I feel the education system as it currently stands does not allow enough young people to come through to meet that need or it merely goes through the process of claiming to do all of that and giving some certification, mm. which is valued in the marketplace. So that's what I want to come to. Now, before we come to the vocational and the engineering and science and all that, talk about that regulation bit, because it ostensibly being done to try and maintain quality and weed out people who might be fly-by-night operators or just peddling certificates for a fee. But we are seeing the unintended consequence, but very well-known consequences. So you've seen it for years on end. What do you think? I know there's no silver bullet, but what? how do you think about solving this regulation problem? What should they not do? And where should they just, you know, back off a little bit and see how this plays out? I think or... there's nothing wrong with self-regulation. I, I mean, the elite institutions of the government are self-regulating. Mm-hmm. They're not, uh, I mean, they have some influence from the ministries and all that, but the IITs and the IIMs are largely self-regulating. Now, let's say, for example, that you find that there are some 10 institutions that are really good in the private sector in a certain field. Mm -hmm. So you say, uh, biotechnology, here are the top 10 colleges in biotechnology in India, in the private sector. Now, are you willing to say these 10 colleges can do whatever they want? The problem seems to be that even those who are at the top of your regulated 
environment are subject to the same rules as those who are not in the top, those who are in the middle, those who are in the bottom. In a sense, you have to create subsets, subsets of the learning economy which are free to run fast and free to run without as many restraints. If they also have to say, I'm waiting for UGC approval for this, AICD approval for this, AICD approval is, everybody knows, is like, you know, is bizarre. They went to Indian School of Business and said, you're not a recognized institution. Right? The world's top recruiters are recruiting from there. But what the government's position was that it's not a recognized institution. AICD director will be called to speak at ISP. So in a sense, you have to sort of break this by saying, allow self, more self-regulation. There are even industries that self-regulate. The advertising industry in India is self-regulated. That's why one of the problems is that it's self-regulated. But there are industries that allow that are self-regulated, or at least allow this allow greater freedoms for the proven institutions in each field, so that they can set up more innovative courses. Uh, that's number one. So the second thing is actually happening in the market. Mm. If you if you go back twenty five years when you had this degree, diploma, all the usual kind of thing. In the world of IT, mm. one other thing emerged, which basically just said, the hell with you and your degree, the hell with you and your diploma. And the thing that emerged was that you could quickly learn a skill. In six months, you could learn a skill that got you a job that was better paying than what you might get if you got a diploma or a degree. That's all it was. That Even today, a good programmer with about a year's worth of training under her belt can crack a job, a starting job that is better paying than somebody who's actually gone to a computer science degree university or college today. And the reason is that in that sector of the economy, something has happened which allows employers to say hiring talent based on what the, the person is able to do Hmm. is possible and uh, adequate for what they're trying to do. So employers have figured out there's a, there's, an, there's a way to get to this talent without relying on the approvals of the and, and the formal methods of the education system. You can And some people sometimes say the government did not interfere with this. It allowed this thing to flourish and create a competitive IT industry. So if that's the case, why don't you do that in more sectors? Yeah. In a sense, the answers are before us. We have to allow more people to teach. That's really what happened. More people were allowed to teach. If you knew programming, you could teach me, regardless of anything else. Maybe IT benefited from the fact that if I didn't get a job in India, I could still get a job somewhere else quite easily based on that same skill. Regardless, IT clearly benefited from the fact that increasing numbers of people were allowed to teach. NIIT and AppTech and all of those guys built entire institutions. So if you increase the number of people who are allowed to teach, that will give you an increased number of young people who are knowledgeable about something. Therefore, you can build a competitive economy based on that. This is sort of the landscape for creating more young people with capabilities in what we want them to know for our cities to be able to thrive in the future. There's one more thing about learning itself. There's lots of evidence that children, teenagers, college students can't really pay attention for more than four and a half hours a day. Mm. Most learning programs are designed for six and seven and eight hours a day. Uh, school, of course, has become a substitute for daycare. 
There is not a clear separation of those two functions and therefore kids end up being in school much, much longer than they need to be. Um, and then these breaks are also really not very helpful. Uh, there's lots of evidence that during summer breaks, in particular, children from poorer families fall back quite a bit mm. because they don't have activities that they, that they go through in the breaks. So I think the school day needs to be shorter, like four and a half hours is enough for a school day mm. uh, of, of learning. You can do other things uh, outside the school or outside the classroom the rest of the time. But I think the school year needs to be longer. Right? You need to be in school uh, in Sundays, excluding Sundays and Saturdays, or most of Saturdays. I think you need to be in school a lot more than mm. uh, what children are doing. And there are experimental programs in different parts of the world that are proving that these things also matter to, mm-hmm. to learning outcomes. And it's just like what I said about the P-TECH program. There are mm-hmm. initiatives that are trying something different. And if those things are working, I feel we should be learning from those initiatives around the world and trying those kinds of things in India as well. But we don't really yet have a culture of trying experiments that step outside the formal blessed route. And part of the reason is that governments are not creating experimental channels in which to try these other things as well. They'll say, we'll create some, I don't know, Navodaya school or something. They'll, they'll call something, this is a school of excellence. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I find school of eminence, school of excellence, all of those kinds of things within the government system would be a little bit challenging. You don't have universal quality education yet. And you're on to building schools of excellence. Against the same thing will happen. You will say the school of excellence is only for 12% of the population. They'll all go there. You'll try to do something over there. And the other 88% will be left to languish. We have to build universal in a way that is stronger. Today, we are building some that are strong, but that's coming at the cost of ignoring the universal. But the economy of the future does depend both on quality and quantity. Mm. Our system is designed to produce some quality or at least the appearance of quality, but surely not in sufficient numbers. So while these finishing schools have played a huge part in large demand, high demand kind of courses, there are things that are strategic, but not maybe high demand. Of course, you're not going to have a finishing school for the arts. You're not going to have, there are some things like today, Chemistry is again becoming big, but it's not substantive enough for people to want to provide those as, uh, you know, substantial services outside. There is still then a need for this uh, basic education, vocational and engineering and science, uh, what has been established. There is the sheepskin effect in this, which is your certificate is valued. But even in that, you already talked about some courses not being valued as much. One of the things I see is, vocational courses like a diploma is severely undervalued not just in the employer's heads but in mostly in the students and the parents that they feel vocational education like a diploma is not something even the diploma guys that i try to hire are trying to say no i want to you know be an engineer and get paid more and do something else who can influence these choices that are more appropriate isn't vocational training something that is useful today to have nobody has a hands-on very little practicals in school it has just become books there seems to be an underemphasis on doing things and yet we want the economy to grow how can that work well the vocational training is kind of interesting even at, we typically 
tend to think of vocational training as something that poor people do mm. uh, or we think of it as something that failed students do exactly because, right this is a really <laughs> bad thing because first of all if you if you think of vocational training as something that failed students do first you have to fail in the whole system is you fail first and then we we'll see what we can do about vocational training uh, which is really silly that there are young kids who are interested in vocational skills without failing and you got to be able to figure out how to sort of give them that opportunity to learn and also vocational training typically is after the schooling years but when you set it up as after the schooling years you have to solve for accommodation you have to solve for institutional space and safety and all of those kinds of things whereas um, uh, if you do the vocational training when students are still in school right there's those things are anyway sorted in some other way and you can take advantage of that as well i feel the problem is that this vocational training is not given any importance because there's a, a kind of a hierarchy of learning i guess there's no other way to put it you can think of it as the um, uh, these are these are upper types and these are middle types and lower types of learning and i think that's not really true i met a guy in um, alakan about 6 uh, weeks ago guys building some motors something like that right he's come up with something which is phenomenal and he never actually like had any of the degrees to to do all these kinds of things he just worked on motors all his life and over a period of time he figured out a bunch of things and in fact he figured out one or two things that in some way cut uh, are, are at the frontier of the science of motors as well so when he figured out those things he had to go and ask somebody else why is this thing working in a way that you know is different from everybody else and he had to learn the science when he was 45 years old or 50 years old so in a sense i think these different pathways to learning become more important especially because now people are living longer compared to one and a half generations ago you are living 20 years longer now let's ask the question how do we want to apportion these 20 years you can say x percent of this 20 years is for working x percent is for retirement is any part of the additional 20 years for childhood that is despite longevity childhood seems to be actually getting shorter it's certainly not getting longer nobody is saying you are living to be 85 years old therefore childhood should extend till 20 or 25 not end at 15 or 20 right so in a you can think of it differently i feel it is useful to have learning programs that guarantee 16 years of learning rather than 12 years of learning. today the the emphasis seems to be to give children 12 years of learning and, and the right to education actually gives you only 8 12 is the standard that some of the better states are aspiring to but i actually think young people should be guaranteed 16 years of state funded learning in some form of the other without exclusion that, that you have a, you should have a right to say after high school i have a right to continue learning in a state funded way for 3 or 4 more years now if it doesn't it doesn't have to be a university it doesn't have to be a, a college in a formal sense but then there has to be other things that get funded for learning if you are teaching uh, let's say for uh, physical education um somewhere there's no reason why a young learner cannot be given state support to become a certified physical education person so in a sense we have to increase the amount of time that 
uh, that's also part of the economy because in, in some sense you're saying you have to give more money to training more young people in more things. That's the investment. The education budgets need to be considerably higher than what they are today. But on the other side, if you look at the employers, employers are saying, you have limited the number of people who can come through the system. Hmm. Therefore, I have no way of uh, competing with many other employers to find the limited number of acceptable graduates. Hmm. Now, you may not have put together any solution for the others, but something keeps happening. Some, some kind of university, some kind of college gets established. There are one or two colleges even in Bangalore where there are no students uh, because the guy has got some approval. Some more has become certified and recognized and all of those kinds of things. But if you are a student, if you are an applicant, you don't really want to go there. So you have this bizarre thing. On the one hand, you have set up these institutions that assure quality. On the other hand, several of them exist where no student wants to go. What kind of quality are you assuring, assuring in this way? And employers also. I had personal experience of this. If somebody comes and says, I got a degree from whatever, let's say, Bulansar University. I don't know where that kid is. The, or some university in a faraway part of the country. I have no way of understanding what this means because I tell myself, well, the education system is such that all kinds of people have set up all kinds of things in the name of assuring quality. There isn't an easy way to figure out what exactly this means. So you ignore that certification. Instead, you say, okay, look at the person. Hmm. If I go and if somebody applies for a job, you say, okay, let's talk to this guy, let's talk to this girl, let's see what he or she knows, and we'll figure out what they know and figure out how to create a starting point for, from that. But some larger employers don't have the luxury of doing that. They'll say, I need to go to a place where there are at least 200 potential people that I can hire, right? I need to go to a college from which I can hire 200 people. That means you go to one of these certified, approved things and say, okay, let's let's hope that I can find whatever. But even there, I think some of them got smarter about this. I, some years ago, I'm going to say eight or 10 years ago, I think it was Wipro, which said, you don't actually have to hire from engineering colleges. You can hire from like BSc colleges also. Mm. Um, and what that tells you is, what the employers are largely solving for is the discovery function. Hmm. They're saying, I need to go to a place where lots of young people are gathered who've been put through some formal training, who know enough social conduct to be in an office, and who are trainable in some way by me afterwards. That's really what's happening on the employment side. That employers are basically still saying, if we are going to bet the future of our organization, uh, on a certain skill, it's really our responsibility to ensure that we are able to compete for and get that skill. Mm. Mm. Now, a few employers can do that. The rest are going to go and say, we're not able to find any talent. Yep. And they'll go to the state and say, do something. But it's because the state has been doing all these things that they're not able to find any talent. They still go to the state only and do, say, do something. They got to figure this out, that in, a, in some way, we have to create a third track of learning in which increasing numbers of young people are able to learn better and better, no matter what their starting point. Correct. That, you know, if, if you don't set it up to work for someone who is not good, you can't actually make it work for someone who is good. And that is not taught, I feel, is how should kids learn new skills and new things and how do you get on? Some, pe some kids figure it out. Some people have guidance and do that. And for some others, it is just, I just have too many things to do in school already. What do you want me to learn some more for? 
and there's a lot of that going around but nevertheless there is also this cost issue when it comes to quality right who pays for all these things there is the, you need to pay better and better teachers you need to probably look for external thing and you, if you need vocation if you need people to get hands dirty and do things and make things then you need labs and maybe even rent and there should be options of getting or sharing labs there has to be more physical facilities no and who pays for all this isn't the cost going to increase anywhere there so for example this year you would have seen in the last year several state governments started giving out money to families to say look if a thousand rupees per woman for example fairly far common thing the most recent one i read a few days ago said the state had provisioned seven thousand crores for that i feel that seven thousand crores could have been put 10 years ago into girls education mm. if you in a sense the government is government or somebody is going to end up bearing the cost anyway the cost is also born in the economy for i read some articles some three four years ago that said uh, the cost of making a car in some german factory was cheaper there was lower cost than making that car in some factory in gurgaon now we think that lower cost labor is one of our great competitive advantages but when you add together all the efficiencies in production right if you're producing three cars an hour using low cost labor and somebody else is producing 30 cars an hour including uh, with much higher cost labor the per car cost is quite low so in a sense we have to look at productivity we're looking at certification with certification tells you that a person is above a minimum acceptable threshold a minimum viable product is what you're trying to get through certification but what you really want in the economy is productivity how do you ensure the productivity of people with lower levels of education as well if we can have a focus on that then the economy will actually benefit far more as long as we set it up a certification only it's not going to be enough we have to say post certification in mid career also how do we boost productivity and how do we recognize and how do we measure and recognize that as well um you have to have that without that you're you go and say look we're going to have uh, an agriculture based economy in let's say kubri uh, darwan mm. mm. or a solar park based economy in tumkur you say i'm going to do all of these kinds of things it's not going to be easy to populate those spaces with the human resources to run those things to the next level the second thing goes back to what i said earlier when i when i said satya if you think about where else in india you might be willing to live right in a sense i if i said to you are you willing to live in pavagadam right if the answer is no i'm not willing to live in pavagadam um and part of the reason is that it is not known to have some of the other things that you care about right it's not only about an economy sometimes people do make choices because they're getting jobs in some places i've known people to go take jobs in bihar also so because it it gave them more income to do some things in some companies at that time but by and large the voting with your feet today is in very specific directions people are going to large metropolitan areas people are going to some of the bigger cities nearer their villages but there is a tremendous emptying out of the villages right every day 10 villages in india become empty the census estimate is that in the next 10 or 15 years 40000 more villages will become empty already 40000 villages are empty so 
in a sense, there is a regrouping of people with some spaces being totally abandoned and other spaces becoming, you know, more attractive. Now you have to factor that also in into your imagination of the future. There are lots of past investments in made in some of these places that people are going away from. What does that mean for the future? If if a village empties out, then what what, is, what does it mean for those who hold land there for for that space itself? There's a governance problem as well. Mm. We've set this up again. We've also limited the number of people who can decide anything in government, and partly because of centralization of power. Mm. Everything is decided by either the central government or the state government. Whether to take some step that will boost the economy in, let's say, Shimoga. It should be possible by the administration of Shimoga, not just for small things, but for significant things as well. We've not created an administrative system in which cities or even districts can forge ahead based on their own decisions about what they want the future of their economies to be. This is created on a ranking order, right? So let's say we have a ranking order that says, okay, Bangalore first, Hubidhar one second, Mysore third, order, Bangalore fourth, Tavangiri fifth, uh, like that, there's some ranking order, right? Gulbarga and so on. So now, let's say you are in Gulbarga. You are sort of somehow part of thinking about the future. Now, if you say, I want Gulbarga to become the most prominent city in Karnataka. As per the current way in which the system operates, that's not allowed. But I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm saying that's not allowed. Mm. Because if you see the allocation of resources... If you see the way in which decisions are made for various cities, that follows the hierarchy that currently exists. Sometimes some political person from a certain part of the state will become influential. Maybe he'll become the education minister or the industries minister. And he can do a few things outside of that. But other than that, there is a tendency to maintain the hierarchy of places. The hierarchy, if you maintain the hierarchy of importance of places, you're holding them back from being whatever they can be by running faster. If you're holding them back from running faster, how can you base your economic competitiveness on that? So in a sense, until there is a more peer-to-peer relationship between state, market, and society, Mm. and until there is a more liberal regime in which the the people who can teach are, there's more people who can teach, there are more ways of learning, and there are more ways of certifying and recognizing that learning. Until you put this in place, you can't actually build a competitive economy for any city. Mm. Because without this, you won't produce the numbers and quality of people needed to power that economy. So that actually might be a good place to conclude. But I would like you to bring this together again in a different way because there are two more questions. So one, we saw that from what I distill. One is we are trying, the state is trying to determine how cities should be because they, the city governments themselves don't have the powers to determine how they need to be. Half of them don't even exist. And even if they do, they don't do a good job of it. And a lot of the institutions are controlled by the state anyway, with most of the parastatals and other things. So that being the case, the state is determining how the city should be. And what you're saying is they kind of already bracket you in different categories. The danger you also brought out was uh, that predetermining that Kalburki should do this or Davangere should do that could be a bet they are taking and it's a huge risk because 
let's say you want to know there's a huge let's say there's a huge focus on fabs building fabs right i mean it needs a lot of things i don't think the engineers have even seen a lithography machine yet but that is what you need to do to make the fab happen so, so let's say I'm, i i get a job in a cement factory that's not going to be in a city it's going to be where it is and you have to go there it's not going to come to you now those are some of the risks in how cities are going to develop and then you talked about the overall economy and the how it needs to be deregulated in order for us to discover the vocational part of things and make engineering happen if you take the next steps as to where we are we seem to be stumbling through these things we are doing some things right and some things not if you prioritize these and said look this is what the state can do this is what the market can do this is what the institutions that are teaching can do uh, how would you want to order them uh, as a way forward because the state has done the least in the past the more has to be done by the state okay but i think it's not about who needs to do more hmm. it's about the stance that one needs to take mm-hmm. essentially the state has to say that i'm going to treat the market and society as peers not mm-hmm. as customers or clients today um, in the education system in particular is very ironic there's one group of people who have no agency who are providing all the money and this is parents imagine that <laughs> that it's really bizarre to have a system in which the paying customer whether it's a taxpayer in a public institution or the parent in a private institution has no agency at all in trying to steer any of this they are basically operating in a take it or leave it kind of environment both in the public sector and in the private sector um so you have to create a more peer to peer relationship and the reason parents don't have agency is that the state has limited the number of ways in which certified learning can be gained and given that power to only selected institution that align with that imagination therefore now the customers are trapped if you free the customer mm. then the system will change right in the it sector the customer is not trapped he can say forget it i'm going to drop out of what of 11th standard and go and do something you and i both know people have dropped out of 11th standard and gone and done something in the it sector and made a good living doing that once the customer is free there's not a whole lot you can do you have to actually free the customer to be able to do to make more choices as long as you restrain the customer you're going to limit the number of choices because you limit the number of choices you you also limiting the quality and if you and in a sense the government tells itself that it is ensuring quality by limiting the number of choices um but by and lies is ensuring only poor quality by limiting the number of choices so that peer to peer relationship has to come about in which the government says fine more people are going to be able to do these things but also there is one reason why the government is able to do this the way it is now the government is both an operator and a regulator i think you have to create a system in which the regulator of the education system is separate from the department the department cannot be involved in regulation uh, the regulator has to be someone who is independent and who regulates all schools mm. and cannot selectively be regulating private schools only like most people will tell you the block education officer spends most of his time regulating the private schools in his area not really doing much for the public schools i feel once you separate the two you will get a much you know it it will take time even then but you'll get new directions in mm. which the regulator by wearing the hat of only the regulator 
somebody will come to him, some reporter or a podcaster like you will go to the regulator and say, as a regulator, right? At that point, he cannot tell you all the achievements of the department. He has to tell only the achievements of the regulatory function. So it's like having the competition commission or something like that. You got to have an equivalent education commission which regulates everybody in some way. Even in competition commission, you've seen that. There was a letter from the Ministry of Finance or something like that some years ago written to all the insurance companies, the government-owned insurance companies, LICs and universities, mm. guys, uh, encouraging them to keep uh, insurance rates more or less equal, similar across them, right? In the private sector, that would be considered a cartel. Yeah, price right? fixing. Yeah, but uh, what I'm yeah, exactly. So, but in a sense, if you want to change the scenario, you've got to say, be more liberal about who is who can teach and what constitutes teaching and how that is going to be recognized. Second, separate the regulatory function from the operational function uh, so that if government is operating educational institutions, fine, that's great. They're serving a constitutional function and they're providing some service. But let the measure of that be with somebody else in some way. So these are all steps that clearly can be taken on the government side. Employers have an obligation too, I feel. Employers, yeah. you know, they are sort of like deer in the headlights, right? They're sort of saying, um, the thing that we're all betting on is not happening. It's not my responsibility to create the alternative to that. Or creating the alternative is such a large job that I can't be doing that. Mm. So this is another problem in societies where the the peer-to-peer relationship doesn't exist. The people in society don't imagine that they can move the needle. Mm. They say, if you want to move the needle, you have to be rich like Ambani or Gates. But otherwise, you can't move the needle from the society's side. And I think that's not really true. And this is some of the stuff that we've been experimenting with in recent years. That you have to bet on increasing the number of problem-solving people. And that means giving everyone no matter what their station in society and economy today is, giving everyone a path to becoming a problem solver. You don't have to promise them all the same outcome. But no matter where you are, you should be able to say, from this point onwards, I have a path to becoming a problem solver, to becoming a learner. We are, we are, we are limiting that greatly. And because we are limiting that greatly, what we can achieve is limited independently. And, you know, coming back to cost, if you don't em- spend the money on changing that reality today, you're going to be carrying the cost of taking care of these people anyway. Mm. What would you rather have? A productive economy in which the cost of taking care of people is actually paid for by the people themselves or an unproductive economy in which people are dependent on government subsidies all the time. Uh, The cost you cannot avoid in one way or the other. That was useful, like someone said. Life is a series of principal agent problems that we keep lurching through. But this was useful to bring together all of these issues and how we can solve some of these things. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show, Ashwin. Request everyone to like, subscribe and share these videos so we can have more interesting conversations. Uh, Thanks once again, Ashwin, uh, for coming on the show. Thank you. I wanted to also say about six months ago, I wrote a, a document in which I tried to say, in different districts of Karnataka, hmm. if we were to bet the future, the economic future of that district on certain industries and certain steps in those industries, what would that be? Uh, so I think now it's possible to create documents like that for, and I want to actually create that document for every district in India. 
and say how do you build a local competitive economy for every part of the country based on its inherent strengths uh, and what are some steps that can be taken at some point in the future we should talk about what these things mean for some of the smaller towns and cities well thank mm-hmm. you Satya for having me on the show again all right see you all next week bye bye